what are the tools and resources you currently use in your real estate business? Here we talk about North Carolina real estate, business, and life. Today's Real Talk. Today's Real Talk.com, 844-STUDIO-4. I'm Justin Kazepis. The Q&A session, as always, at the end of the show. Still time to get your questions in so I can do what I can to help. 844-STUDIO-4. Excited to have the Cosseg King, Yona Weiss, on the show today. He's going to help us add a very valuable resource to our tool belt, cost segregation. What did he say to me? Cost segregation, dealing with keeping more money, right? It's not just about what you make. It's about how much do you keep? I learned that lesson a few years ago. So if I think about my personal progression in real estate, starting off as a real estate broker, um, have been for 10 years, becoming a licensed attorney, opening my own practice, adding little pieces, right? Adding little tools, some larger than others, relatively speaking, over time. So when a situation occurs, right, based on experience, based on the number of transactions you've been involved with, you've also gained insight and access to resources and tools. And that's what I want to do for you today. I want to provide you with another resource to consider, another tool to think about using in real estate, cost segregation. Part of anything in life, I'm a big believer in always learning something new. There's the old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I I don't believe that. Um, I think we're just stubborn, right? I, I don't think it's that we can't be taught. It's that we choose not to be taught. So I hope and I pray that I've always got a mindset that is willing to learn and and take my skill set to the next level. And I believe you share that too, to to some level, to some degree. Um, Maybe uh, real estate isn't your primary. Maybe real estate is a secondary thought for you. So in life in general, always be considering learning a new skill. Like at home, I'm working on listening better. So I'm trying to do that each day, uh, a big struggle. Uh, Maybe it's my A-type person or something. I'm not sure. But uh, so keep in mind learning new skills and taking it in bite-sized pieces. It's not one stop drink from a fire hose, absorb everything. I'm a visual learner, right? I don't know how you learn. I'm a visual learner. So I like to see things in charts and color graphics and it's got to be simplistic. My wife's a kindergarten teacher. So thankfully she can help explain things at the most basic level, which is what I need. So maybe you learn a particular way, writing things out, memorizing, visually seeing it. So always keep in mind there's multiple ways to learn something as well. So if you don't get it right the first time, don't get frustrated. It takes practice. But let's practice making good decisions. And a good decision here is to check out what we've got today, cost segregation, Today's Real Talk, todaysrealtalk.com, 844-STUDIO-4. That's the phone number if you want to get your questions in before the Q&A session. Excited. We're getting Yona Weiss on as soon as we're back. I need some real talk. Some real talk. Give me some of that real talk. All right, Justin Kazepis, today's real talk, todaysrealtalk.com. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, just search today's real talk or text get real to 844 Studio 4. We can put the content directly to your advice. 
Text get real 844-STUDIO-4. That's also the number if you've got questions for one of my favorite segments of the show, the Q&A segment, 844-STUDIO-4. I will do my best to answer your questions about real estate. Now, I'm not going to pretend like I know everything because I don't. This game is always changing. And if I don't know the answer, one of my biggest passions is getting you connected with people who uh, specialize and have the experience and knowledge to help you with where you're at your journey. And I am honored and thrilled to be joined by one of those specialists today, the Cosseg King himself, Yona Weiss, host of the Weiss Advice Podcast. You can listen to it wherever you listen to your podcast. He is also the regional business director of Madison Specs, a company that uh, focuses on specialized engineering for properties and cost segregation. Yona, I am so thrilled to have you. Thank you for your time. I'm curious whether actively or passively, how long have you been investing in real estate? Uh, about six years now uh, that I've been both actively and passively investing in real estate. It's taken on various forms. Uh, I did some you know, very, very actively involved in, in fix and flips. Uh, right at the beginning of my real estate career, uh, pretty pretty early on, and did a lot of brokering, did some stuff, but been involved in the cosmetic space for the past five years, and you know, in that during that time, I've been more passively investing. Only now uh, am I kind of retaking that space of uh, becoming more actively involved in the you know the size of multifamily properties and some self storage, and some active deals. Okay, so are you are you doing ground up development, mostly value add? What's your preference thus far when you got your feet wet? What do you like to do? Whatever's gonna get the best returns. What we find is uh, development can have incredible returns, although it does take a number of years to to realize those. What I have been investing in has been mostly value add uh, multifamily properties. Okay, and then are you seeing? Uh, are you do you uh, when you invest actively? Are you focusing just in the, your geographic location where you're located, or are you willing to invest beyond where you're at because of the team you've got in place? I am uh, investing in other markets than I'm currently located. In fact, um, it really has more to do with the team, the actual operations, because my involvement, even though it's active, when you're dealing with commercial real estate. Like you said, it's a team, a team that's being put together. There's a team sport that's involved, as we like to say. And each person on that team will have a different active role. One of the things that I am not good at and do not have uh, experience or enjoy doing is the active, uh, you know, boots on the ground type of property management and, and asset management, that kind of thing. So I am involved more on the capital raising side on some aspects of marketing and, and um and growth and things like that. I will invest in markets outside of where I'm currently located. And every team, every aspect of the team is important. And so your focus being the numbers, and I assume a huge part of that is, is cost segregation, um, and depending on the project and what the exit is you guys are looking for. So what I want to do, I'm, I'm big on education, right? Education to me is a chain breaker. It enables people to, to step their game up and to better their own lives. And a lot of education begins with a basic concept of definitions and terms, so give us a rundown. What would you say the top three to five terms are in cost segregation? That's great. Uh, and I'm glad you're doing that. I 
totally agree with you. I actually was a teacher for about 15 years, and that's my passion, so I can totally relate to that. Let's let's break down some of these important definitions. So before we get to defining cost segregation, let's define depreciation. Depreciation, although if you look in the dictionary, may say that it means the devaluing of a property or value of something going down. From a real estate perspective, it actually means it's a borrowed term, okay? Depreciation, the definition is a tax deduction that is based on the principle that things go down in value as time goes on. So anytime you buy a commercial or residential investment property besides for your personal residence, you are allowed to take this income tax deduction called depreciation. And it, that's what it is, okay? So it doesn't mean it's going down in value. It's just based on that concept. And it starts when you buy that property. So it is a... Uh, that's the first definition we want to know. What is depreciation? The second thing we want to know is cost segregation, which essentially is depreciation on steroids, okay? It is a advanced form of depreciation. So instead of just taking your property value, buy a property for a million dollars, let's say, and you depreciate it over a 27 and a half year period, that means you take a little bit each year, equal amount for 27 years. That That's depreciation. Cost segregation means let's segregate the cost of that property. Let's break down the components and put them in different categories and show how different components have a different value. So instead of lumping everything together, that whole million dollars into one bucket and taking a little bit of those deductions each year, you can actually put certain components that depreciate over a five-year schedule or a seven or 15-year schedule, which means you can get bigger tax deductions during the earlier years. So long definition, but let's just recap. Cost segregation is the process of identifying and allocating different components of the property to faster depreciation schedules. So when you say different components, let's start with, I just want to talk about a couple of those pieces right now, because I've, I've seen your, your content on with bigger pockets and those guys and, and the other groups that you work with. So if I, if I'm buying a property and I'm like, okay, so it's a hundred thousand dollars on paper, call it, let's go with stick with a million. Cause you use that example. So a million dollars on paper sales price. And I walk into the property. Is, is it all like one lump sum? Are we breaking this out from, you know, there, there's the inside and like piping and the appliances to the trees and sidewalks. What, what are we looking at there? Yeah, you're exactly right. We're breaking down every individual component. So yeah, we're going to look at the trees and the sidewalks and those things are going to depreciate on a 15 year schedule because they're land improvements. And there are, you know, over a two dozen different categories of things that can be lumped into what's called land improvements, you know, different types of concrete or pavement or asphalt or landscaping, et cetera. And then going into the property, we're not just looking at the whole thing being lumped together. We're looking at, well, you have the, the siding, you'll have things that are structural, that are going to depreciate on that 27 and a half year schedule. So we're going to identify those structural components. That's like the roof, the walls, doors, floor, you know, windows, infrastructure, like plumbing and electric. However, there are components that are going to depreciate on that five year schedule. And those are non-structural items. So you'll have lighting, you know, carpeting, flooring, cabinets, furniture, appliances, equipment, window treatments, you know, all sorts of things. And again, a couple dozen categories of different components that will fit into uh, what's called non-structural components. So we're going to identify what all those individual things are, add them up, and then each one will be depreciated faster. So when you say depreciated faster, are we talking about bonus depreciation? Are we talking solely based on the Tax Cut and Jobs Act? What are we talking about there? So 
it accelerated depreciation. That's when we depreciated faster. So all those things that I mentioned earlier, those non-structural components are going to depreciate on a five-year schedule. Okay, things outside the property on a 15-year schedule. Once we identify what they are and complete this cost segregation, we can now take, you know, let's say this million-dollar property. Well, maybe 20% of that, $200,000, is going to be in this five-year category, meaning you can now take the $200,000 deduction over a five-year period instead of, you know, taking a small amount each year over a 27-year period. So that's not bonus depreciation. What bonus depreciation is in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, and maybe this is our third definition here, uh, bonus depreciation says that once you've done a cost segregation study and you've identified assets or components that depreciate under 20 years, so the five-year, the 15-year categories we just mentioned, you can now take that as a lump sum in the first year. So you don't have to wait those five years. I mean, you don't have to wait that, you know, 27 and a half years. You can actually get a big lump sum of those accelerated depreciation deductions in the first year. So we take the whole structure itself, uh, the structural components, 27 and a half years, interior at five years, the exterior things at 15 years. And now you're telling me we can lump this all together and say, hey, in one single year, we can deduct a hundred percent. That seems pretty mind blowing to me. Is that is that? Yeah, it is mind blowing. But a hundred percent of the accelerated components. So the structural twenty seven and a half year, and that's always going to be the majority of the value of the property. If you think about it, right, a building, the majority is going to be in the structure. That's still going to be on the twenty seven and a half year schedule. But everything else is going to go on that you know, faster schedule. And like you said. They take a big lump sum. It's a game changer. Take a big lump sum of that in the first year. And it's been a game changer since that was introduced with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I think has accelerated the real estate markets uh, beyond anyone's expectation. So what are there a couple more definitions that you think would be important for us to know? So we've gotten at this point, we've got depreciation, we've got cost segregation and bonus uh, depreciation, I believe, were the three we really have had. Uh, what else would you would you recommend we know? I think an important thing to understand, you know, taxes are for most people when you hear like taxes and like probably people tuned into this and saw taxes like, oh, I don't want to listen to this, right? People's brains shut off when you start talking about taxes. But if you're a real estate investor, you have to know that this stuff is so important because it's going to make or break your investing uh, career. Tax benefits of real estate are greater than probably any other industry out there. And so one important definition I want to talk about just in terms of taxes is what's called your Schedule E, right? Which is your, it's going to be different from your normal Schedule C uh, active income. Your Schedule E is going to be your passive income uh, from real estate, from a tax perspective. Now, don't get confused to think that real estate is passive because it's not. Okay, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble out there, but real estate investing is not passive uh, unless you are literally just passively investing, uh, you know, in a syndication as a limited partner. You're just putting in some money and they're taking care of the rest. But if you own your own property or you're involved in any, it is not pa passive as you probably know. That being said, the Schedule E, that's where it's going to identify and list all of your passive income and your depreciation schedule which is a part of that, is going to show what your depreciation deductions are going to be. I think there's going to be one more definition that we should talk about besides that, which is called real estate professional status. Okay, Real estate professional status is a definition actually put out by the IRS. This is a tax status, which means 
as we just mentioned about the schedule, your passive income, any income that you make from rental real estate, so whether it's commercial, residential, whether you're actively invested, invested, passively invested, it is going to show up on your Schedule E. That is called rental income, and the IRS deems it as passive income from the tax perspective. The only way you can use these depreciation deductions is to offset your Schedule E income. Okay. This is really important. If you make, you know, you have a W2 job and you're making, you know, good money and you also have some rental properties. Well, the tax deductions from depreciation and cost variation are only going to be used to offset your W, excuse me, your schedule E passive income. So that's really, really important. Okay. A lot of people think, Oh, I'm going to invest. And then I can use this against my W2 income and it's going to be great. I'm never going to pay taxes again. And unfortunately that's not the case. The real estate is kind of in a different category as uh, your W-2 income. So that's why I wanted to bring up this definition of real estate professional because this is the one exception to that rule that I just laid out. And so if someone wants to become a real estate professional, is it purely a time basis amount of income or or how, is there any other way that someone can get to that status while still being a W-2 employee, right? Is there a way, what, what would you say is kind of that golden rule for people on that simplistically? So the golden rule of the real estate professional status is you cannot have a W-2 job and also get the real estate professional status. That's the golden rule. However, your spouse can. Uh, and so this is really important if you are a real estate investor and maybe you have a spouse that uh, is a realtor or a real estate broker, you are, or, or they're doing the property management or anything like that, they are considered a real estate professional. And so to answer your question, Justin, is it is simply a time factor that the IRS looks at. If you spend the majority of your time, which essentially means you cannot have another full-time job because the IRS or the people that are at the IRS cannot fathom that a person can actually work more than 40 hours a week. And so if you're claiming real estate professional status and also simultaneously have another job, they think you're lying. Just as simple as that. Although even though you and I both know people can be working 80, 100 hours a week and, uh, you know, and still get things done. Nevertheless, from IRS definition, you cannot have a W-2. It requires you uh, to have at least 50% of your time, again, majority of your time, but again, it means your full-time job in real estate, uh, trade or business, and it's a minimum of 750 hours a year, which means you cannot just like sit back and, you know, go to the beach on, uh, you know, Hawaii or whatever the whole time. You actually have to do some work materially participating. But once you have that real estate professional status, remember I said this is the exception to the rule. The exception means that now using cost segregation or using depreciation can not only offset your rental income, but also can spill over to any other active or W-2 income that your spouse has or any other active income that you may have. So just in a practical example, let's say, you know, you and your spouse are collectively making, you know, let's say $500,000 a year in, uh, in W-2 earnings. Okay. And your rental properties are making, you know, let's say $50,000 a year in earnings. And you did a cost segregation and you were able to get, you know, let's say you bought a $2 million, you know, rental property and, you know, with the, you know, not, you don't have to put a lot of money down to do that, whatever you, you got it done, however you did it. And you're able to get, let's say $500,000 of deductions from a cost segregation. That means you can now use that not only to offset your rental income and pay zero taxes on that income, but also offset and reduce your W-2 income that you have almost 
zero tax liability whatsoever from that as well. So uh, I want to go back to IRS definition. Then we're going to come back to to after you depreciate it. So IRS definition, you mentioned that with the real estate professional status. What about when we're looking at the numbers that we're going to put on our, let me say, my handwritten Excel you know, sheet on my notepad when I'm walking through the house, when really what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire you to come through and put it all together for me, right? But, at the, but when people are looking at the actual numbers, I mean, I've got curtains behind me here. How do we know what everything is actually worth that's in a reasonable amount of the IRS? Are we talking about predefined definitions for every single thing, or is it based on experience and your expertise? There are some predefined definitions. So we use uh, several different softwares that are kind of standardized uh, by the industry and the IRS recognizes that will kind of construction data software that will identify all these different components and say, you know, curtains are, I'm just throwing a number out there. I don't know the actual numbers. I'm not the engineer doing the job, but let's say it's, you know, a dollar per square foot or something like that, right? And so if you have, you know, 300 square feet of curtains across your, you know, your multifamily property, so now you're going to have whatever that is, uh, you know, 300, $300 worth of depreciable value of that. You know, obviously that's, it's much more than that, but just to give an example. So yeah, we're going to use those numbers. We're going to come up with the values through that. So it's not something that you as the owner need to, uh, take note of unless you are either doing a renovation and you're actually adding those values uh, or you're doing a new construction, in which case in both of those instances, we're going to take, our engineers are going to take the actual costs being spent and allocate those costs appropriately to the different categories. Um, so, But what we're doing generally is with the consternation is on acquisition. So if you build a property ground up, you know exactly every line item how much something costs. But when you're buying an existing property, this is really the novelty of cost segregation is saying, well, now I can reverse engineer the property and figure out based on the purchase price, how much all of the components can now add back up to that purchase price. So I guess, and I don't know if it's possible, maybe there's a, you know, the IRS thinks of ways to not let people circumvent the rules or, or if there's stopgap measures, but from a market statistical component, I'd be curious, do you ever see someone get a cost segregation analysis to where the amount found in the cost segregation is more than they paid for the property? No. So unfortunately, that's the point. We are only, so there's, to answer your question, it's, we're always going to have to add up to that purchase price because you're only able to depreciate what it is that you paid for it. However, it raises a very interesting point. What if you bought something, you know, that is very undervalued or, or you bought something that's very overvalued in both of those cases in our calculations, there's always going to be either a, a premium, um, or a discount value applied to the entire property and all the components, which means, and this is part of the, you know, the uh, complications of, of doing the cost segregation is that you need experts doing this to come up with those values because you may say, well, I've added up every component and it equals, you know, a million dollars, but I paid, you know, only $300,000 for the property. Well, sorry, you have to, you can only depreciate $300,000. So now how do we apply a discount rate to all of those individual components to make sure that everything is uh, being depreciated properly according to its proportion and its percentage and also coming and adding up to that value? 
So when we think about ground up development, that makes sense, right? You've got exact numbers you spent on the property, you know exactly where your numbers are at. But from a value add perspective, let's say you buy the property for a million and let's say you put another million dollars into the property in different ways. What does that scenario look like from a cost segregation perspective? Or, or are they just two completely things like, hey, just from a purchase perspective and then, you know, you handle the, the improvement, capital improvements, et cetera, et cetera, separately? It can actually be done in two different stages. So you're going to do the consideration on the property once you purchase it. And so you can take those components uh, and depreciate them as long as you're placing it in service, meaning as long as you're renting it out between the time that you've bought the property and the time that you begin the renovations. There are certainly examples where you're buying a property and, and gutting it and never renting it out, getting it all ready to go. And then once it's ready to go, then putting it on the market or then renting it out. Uh, so these are two completely different scenarios in how cost segregation will apply. In the in the first case where you're renting it out and then at a later point you want to do some, some value add or in many cases like the properties that I'm investing in, for example, it may be a you know a huge hundred, two hundred unit apartment building, you're gonna be doing value add in stages. You're going to you know renovate the units as they become vacant. Okay. So you're the property is always going to be placed in service, and so it's always going to be rented out. Uh, and so in that case, you can do the consideration in two stages. One, on the acquisition and break down everything that's in it. Take those depreciation deductions and get the bonus depreciation like we mentioned before. And then once you've completed the renovations, however much money was spent on that cap capital improvements, the, the value of whatever you want to call it, that money can now be added to your tax basis, be added to your depreciation schedule and uh, be cost segregated. So we're not going to redo the entire property at that point. All we're going to do is just add on those components that were, uh, were added to the property. Do you guys, from your firm's perspective, your company's perspective, what are the disclosures like? I'm getting back to the practical side of using cost segregation. Let's call it bonus depreciation. You buy a million dollar property and let's say you can uh, you know, do a deduction of 500000 Let's just make up a number in a single year. It seems risky for those that have a short-term exit strategy on investment properties if you're going to have a significant increase in value and then you're going to be your your basis starting point of being taxed there seems like a little bit of risk there so so walk me through the potential we'll call them the cons of doing cost segregation um if i'm looking at it from like a swot analysis perspective right w what are those pitfalls people before they put you know press on the gas for this w what should they be considering there's a lot of things to consider, and I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because it's not necessarily a black and white, you know, this is something you should always do. This is for everyone in every situation. Uh, it is more beneficial for, I would say, someone who is uh, an active investor. And what I mean by that is you don't just have one property in your portfolio. It's someone that is continually, you know, wanting to buy, you know, properties year after year and scale because this tax strategy is one that by accelerating depreciation in the first year or in the earlier years, that means you're going to have relatively less of those deductions in the later years. Um, and what that you know can simply translate to is you're, uh, you're, you're front loading it. And the strategy is to have as much cash flow, pay as little income tax as possible to have more cash flow, reinvest that and just scale faster. However, 
two things. Number one, if you are holding a property for a very short time, let's say less than two years or a year or two, then the benefit of those deductions is going to be less because anytime you sell a property, you're going to be subject to a depreciation recapture tax, which maybe we can get into that, but it is a discussion into of itself. I'm happy to follow up with that in a second if you want. And once so having that benefit the net benefit is going to be over a shorter period of time the second thing is if you have only this one property and even if you're holding it forever well getting the benefits now is going to just you know have you less benefit later on okay and so doing the consideration again like i said is for someone who is scaling someone who is buying more properties year after year because you can use the depreciation from one property to offset the income from the others and therefore it is kind of like a snowball that you're able to just keep scaling keep rolling those losses you know those deductions year after year and uh and just keep it going well, you know, I, don't, I don't know if you read my mind or you saw the notes on my page here, but depreciation recapture is the part of it that makes me nervous because I am always, uh, as an, and this might be my legal mind as an attorney, if-then scenarios, right? Like I think my, my, my day is broken up like that a lot um, because there's no one-size-fits-all, and I think that's the same for cost segregation based on our conversation. And so if I have the potential of, well, if I need to exit a particular property, let's say I need to create some, you know, some liquidity in a quick manner, that's always the risk to me. So talk to me about de uh, depreciation recapture. What are, what are, let's go high level with it. And then I'll bring us a little deeper in some of the sections. But when we talk about depreciation recapture, am I just going to get hit with a ginormous tax bill when I go to sell this thing? Maximum tax bracket. You know, it's, it's literally going to be at my income level. What am I looking at there? Yeah, and it's a really important point you brought up, and I'm glad you did because let's start first with what it isn't, okay? Because I think a lot of people have misconceptions based on my you know reading forum posts and bigger pockets and and questions I get from investors all the time. Uh, there is a big misnomer of what depreciation recapture is. So let's have what it is not, okay? It does not mean that you have to pay back all of the depreciation that you took. So if you take, you know. Uh, $300,000 of depreciation deductions over the course of ownership. When you sell, you're going to have to pay now $300,000 back. That is not what it means. Okay. So let's just be clear about that. And you see this all the time. You go search bigger pockets, for example, depreciation recapture means you have to pay it back when you sell. It does not mean that. It's really wrong and, and misguided. What it does mean is that it is considered, depreciation recapture is considered a gain, like a capital gain, okay? So it's called an unrealized gain. When you sell a property, everyone understands there's something called capital gain tax, which means if you made a profit on the sale, you now are gonna be taxed on that profit, that amount of profit, and capital gains can be taxed at 20%, 25%, whatever those rates are, you know, varies federal, state. Depreciation recapture is an unrealized gain. So the amount of depreciation that you took during the course of ownership, you're going to be subject to a tax on that amount. That tax rate, however, is going to depend on several factors. Okay, there's actually three different rates that this can be uh, that we can um, you know tax this on. And I'm not going to get into the details of that. It's a little more complicated, but essentially, it is either capped at a 25% rate, which is similar to capital gain, or it, there is a certain amount that can be applied to a ordinary income tax rate, whatever that is. And so there are going to be different values. So when you do a cost segregation, taking more depreciation upfront, that means you're going to have a larger bill on the sale. 
Okay, that's recapture tax in a, in a nutshell. However, and I do want to, you know, kind of bring this however in there because based on your question, Justin, you're like, well, what, what do I do? If I have a sale, I want to dispose of property, what am I going to do? Is this something I should factor in? It is very much something you should factor in. However, you should also factor in the other things that can help you in terms of making sure to plan accordingly. And this is something, again, this is, I'm not, you know, your CPA, this is something you should discuss with your own, everyone listening out there, discuss with your own tax advisor, right? This is not, you know, direct advice to you, uh, but that's our disclaimer. But what you do need to understand is two things, recapture tax, along with capital gain tax can be deferred with what's called a 1031 exchange. It is a great strategy that's in the tax books that allows you to sell a property in exchange for buying a new property and not pay any capital gain or recapture tax on that sale. Now, to do that, you have to jump through a lot of hoops. There's a time frames, there's forms you have to fill out. Do not sell a property and then figure out that you want to do a 1031 exchange because you can't. You have to figure it out. You have to decide you want to do it before you sell. Um, that being said, that is one strategy a lot of people use to kind of just push, you know, kick the can down the road, as they say. Another strategy and something really important is like we mentioned earlier, if you are an active investor and you are continually buying properties year after year, well, guess what? The losses, the deductions from the depreciation from one property, as I mentioned earlier, can be used to offset the, the income and the gain from the sale of another property, okay? Which means if you sell a property and you don't want to do a 1031 exchange for whatever reason, okay? Um, you can actually do what, what I like to call a lazy 1031 exchange, which means you sell property A and you don't do a 1031 exchange and then you're hit with this huge, like just this huge tax bill, recapture tax, capital gain tax, oh no, what do I do? Well, if you buy another property in the same year, and you get a cost segregation done and you can use that bonus depreciation to get this huge lump sum of deductions or losses, you can use those passive losses to offset the passive gains from the sale of property A. So I, I may have drooled a little bit there at one point, you know, when you start talking about 1031 exchanges in a positive way, because I'm a big fan of the resources and tools, right? And what you're, you're letting people know about here is it's not, again, not one size fits all. You've got to analyze the different path and potential you're on. And this is why it's important and why I always stress having the best team in place, getting connected with all the right players. So as part of our Q&A session every time and when I talk to people, I always have to do this is not legal advice, Yona White. Do not take this stay. I was your attorney. So thank you for the tax plug as well. People definitely know I tell them all the time, I am not a CPA. You don't want me touching your taxes. You want to go to jail, then have me touch your taxes, right? Like that's usually what I tell people. No, I have my accountant does all that. Absolutely. It is everyone should have a fine, uh, a fantastic accountant. My dad always taught me the two people you never shortchange your attorney and your accountant. Those are your top two folks. You never shortchange those people in your life because uh, they help you stay out of jail and I, uh, out of real estate jail, even if you're a licensed broker, right? Or you've got some type of professional certification or license. You always want to be paying the people that keep you in business uh, the right way. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you letting people know that. And again, don't be afraid to do research. Don't be afraid to call on people for help. There's too many different avenues and paths to try to know everything in one setting. So a lot of great stuff that people can break down in there. Uh, I want to talk about uh, kind of the, the, the current market. And, and when we talk about the current market, I, 
it's hard to say. Everyone wants to guess what the future is, but but let's let's take a a even in the past four, 24, 36 months of the marketplace, are you seeing who's your average person you're seeing do cost segregation? Is is it this major institutional money, the big syndicators, mom and pop shops? Who are you seeing use this particular cost segregation tool? You know, it's really interesting because we're the biggest national company doing this and we do such a high volume, uh, you know, over 5,000 of these a year. Um, we get everything, literally. You know, we have clients that are huge institutional investors, REITs, uh, you know, all the way down to your mom and pop uh, and everything in between. And so, you know, multifamily, storage, retail, office, industrial, mobile home parks, you know, single families, you name it, Airbnbs. And that's actually something that has become very popular is people using uh, short-term rentals, Airbnbs, and getting it done on smaller properties. And actually, this is something that a lot of people don't know about. And again, talk with your tax advisor because this is, uh, I mentioned earlier, the real estate professional status as the one exception to the rule of using your depreciation to offset your W-2 or offset your active income. Well, guess what? I was, uh, I was, you know, just, just saying that because it is probably the most prevalent rule out there and it's probably the thing that you're going to find out there. However, there is another loophole that's called, I like to call the short-term rental loophole, which is that and this is why I think we've seen such a huge volume of, uh, of short-term rental and Airbnb investors using consideration is because it is another way that you can actually use the, the, the losses from an Airbnb, a short-term rental to offset your active income, even if you still have a W-2, meaning you do not need to be a real estate professional status to do and take advantage of this because uh, something weird kind of in the tax, in the, in the passive loss uh, you know, deduction rules, uh, section 469, if anyone wants to check that out in the tax code, you can, if you're operating a business or a rental that the average stay is less than seven days, which is like an Airbnb, and you are materially participating, meaning you're spending more than 100 hours a year. It's not a lot and more time than anyone else, which is not a lot. But again, you have to be self-managing it. You can't have a property manager taking care of it. Well, guess what? You can now use those losses to offset your active W-2 income as well. So this is another exception to the rule and something that I've seen a huge influx of, of people taking advantage of. That's, that's such a good piece to, to know because for a lot of people who, who may check this out in the beginning and say, oh, cost segregation, you got you to gotta have 150 doors, 200 doors to be doing this. It's not for me. But when you're talking about an opportunity for I find that most investors I talk to when they're investing actively in real estate, and I get everything's active, but truly active investing in real estate on their first go round, it typically is a rental property and leaning more now toward the short term rentals. And, you know, maybe we have HGTV to thank for that right at the end of the day, but um, the different avenues of cash flow for people. So what a great way to get started um, utilizing. And, and if you think about 100 hours, I remember my first rental property, I felt like I was spending 100 hours a week dealing with that first property I ever got. So I think that that's not an unreasonable number to do in the grand scheme of things, especially as you add more and more and more. But I want to talk about the future too. So that, that's the current market. You're on the inside. You know what's going on. You know what the future is, both from a regulatory perspective and just probably some data and analytics you, your, your company talks about frequently. What do you think the future is for cost segregation? 
I, I think there's not much that's going to change. Uh, there is one thing that this bonus depreciation, when it was written into the code in 2017, it was given uh, a timeline, meaning it was given a demise, let's say, in, in that 100% bonus depreciation is going to start phasing out this year. So 2022 is the last year you can take advantage of the full 100% bonus depreciation. Uh, going forward, it's going to be reduced by 20% each year. So 2023, if you buy a property in 2023, you can only take 80% depreciation, uh, bonus depreciation, excuse me, and then uh, going forward from there. That being said, cost segregation and real estate you know, deductions, if you've read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and if you haven't, you should, um, you know, talks about how the tax code is really, you know, kind of written for real estate investors to, to a, a large extent. And why, why ever that is, I don't know, but it is. And so therefore, I don't really see cost segregation or depreciation or any of these deductions going away in any sense. Uh, and in fact, I have a strong feeling that the 100% bonus depreciation is going to actually be reinstated. Uh, I have a, a very strong feeling with that. I don't have any data to back me up um, or any inside knowledge. I just, I just feel, <laughs> it's my feeling. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but that's what I feel. Weiss advice is that 100% cost segregation, <laughs> bonus depreciation renewed forever. That's that's the answer right there. We like it. Uh, I'm going to support it. I'm I'm rooting for you on that one. I got no problem with that. Um, especially again, not tax advice here. Uh, but when you factor in step up basis for your family and the concept of building generational wealth, uh, I, I that's my guess why it's always there, right? Because uh, there's just something about family, you know, there's some yeah. like one, one, when you've got your family that you want to take care of and you want to see them succeed, even legislators and those who are who are making the rules, right, have families that they want to succeed as well. And that basic principle has been long lasting and I hope it continues on in the future for many generations. Um, and, and that's my guess as to why. And that might just, again, be the attorney inside of me, the, the emotional appeal, right? I got to have a, my, my wife yeah. likes to say I, I don't have a lot of emotion, but uh, that that's one I'll, I'll go for. So um, what do you think then, um, we're talking about the future now at this point, we're saying, okay, uh, that you think it gets renewed. Do you think that more people will start using this as they learn about it? Because I feel like cost segregation wasn't talked about for a while. There's a lot more content, right? Different podcasters like yourself, um, other people creating content that are starting to talk about it more. So do you think it gets utilized more or are we going to forever stay at kind of this, this is the number people know about it, but they're not even going to use it. What do you think? You're absolutely right. It has everything to do with education and with people knowing about it. And that's primarily why I believe there has been such an increase. And there has been, a, from what I've seen in the industry, a slow or steady, maybe not slow, but a steady increase in the amount of people using this. And it was generally something that only the very sophisticated investors knew about. Um, you know, most accountants don't even know about this, even though it's in the tax code, because it's something very real estate focused. Uh, with the tax cuts and job, I think that gave a, a lot more attention to this subject because it was in the news and uh, everyone was covering it. And like I said, it did give a huge boost to the economy because more people uh, using the tax deductions and then having more cash flow to reinvest, et cetera. And so it was getting out there. Me having been a guest on, uh, on at this point, over 300 podcasts, I, I think that had you know a little to do with it in terms of the increase of of use of cost segregation across the country. I don't know the metrics of that, uh, but I have a feeling that that's why. And it really has to do with 
education. If you don't know about it, that's really probably the number one reason why people don't do cost segregation is simply because they didn't know about it or don't know that they can and didn't know it existed. Because that's what the response I get from people all the time is, well, how come my accountant didn't tell me about this? Or why did I never know about this before? Or, or whatever. But yes, there has been a lot more noise about it, a lot more education out there. And I think it will continue to increase as more and more people learn about this. And it used to be, like you said, very, very much only for the large, sophisticated institutional, you know, commercial real estate investors. But because of the bonus depreciation and because of, you know, the Airbnb loophole and things like that, there are people that are using this even on a much smaller scale, meaning a property you bought for, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars can be extremely beneficial and you can get it done. So that and the combination of those factors, I think, is going to just see a continued increase of this. Well, we come full circle because, again, it's about the team. Right. And, and uh, so not only is he the uh, cost seg king, but he is the humble cost seg king who moves markets and changes the game for folks. Yona Weiss, host of Weiss Advice Podcast. You can listen to him wherever you listen to your podcast. Justin Kazepis, Today's Real Talk, todaysrealtalk.com, 844-STUDIO-4. Still time to get those questions in for our Q&A segment where I answer your questions. And if I don't know the answer, I get you connected to people like Yona who are the true experts and specialists in the field. Todaysrealtalk.com. We're coming back right after this. Today's Real Talk, todaysrealtalk.com, 844-STUDIO-4. Justin Kazep is back with you. Q&A session. Ooh, let's see what juiciness we've got on the table today. First question coming from Facebook. What is the future of the real estate market here in North Carolina? Ooh, well, uh, let me say, first off, uh, if I had a crystal ball, I would live in Las Vegas and I would be very well off. Uh, the market will dictate. I remember sitting um, with my dad uh, years ago um, when I was learning um, what it was like doing a CMA presentation, a listing presentation, sitting down with potential sellers at a property. And, you know, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, the, 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 the comps show that your house is worth X. Well, you know, uh, Mr. Anthony, we like that number, but we really think we can get X plus Y because we have done all of these things to our sell, our house. We have uh, just bought uh, at a great location. The schools are fantastic. Uh, we think we can get more. Well, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, my dad would say, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, the market will dictate. And I think the same is to be said across the board uh, when we talk about the future, right? Um, from a pricing perspective, from an a supply perspective, from an in uh, you know, demand perspective, all the different perspectives of real estate, the market will dictate, right? Because if you've got a ready, willing, and able buyer and a ready, willing, and able seller, and they're able to come to terms between each other, that is the market. And so it will be interesting to see what the uh, market holds in the future. One thing I, I pay attention to, and this is just a little insight into my pea-sized brain, uh, wages and spending. Don't get caught up in the, in the rhetoric of, oh, we are in the recession and we are right and all those things. Those things matter, right? Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I, I, I don't mean to sound um, as if they have no value to them. But at the end of the day, wages and spending 
are the two indicators that really control the market. Because if you think about it, every dollar you make from your job that you then spend becomes a dollar of income to that next person. And so if you think about a circle, you've got wages you spend, right? You earn and you spend, you earn and you spend, you earn and you spend. Uh, So that is the true economic cycle um, when I think about real estate and the potential future of the market. Wages and spending, and I like where North Carolina is at. We just need even more jobs. Bring on the jobs, baby. Any company looking, come on over to North Carolina. I'll help you find a place. So uh, what type of taxes do I pay when earning money in real estate. Oh gosh, Uh, (laughs) this is not financial advice. I am not a CPA. I am not a tax advisor. I'm not even a tax attorney. Uh, Outsource that. If that's not what you're going to focus on full-time, find you the best accountant in your market and uh, someone who focuses and specializes in the area that you want to make money in, in this case, real estate. Uh, There's different kinds of taxes. So you've got ordinary income tax that maybe you're just getting real occurring cash flows, right? That's likely going to be just ordinary income, depending on the structure of your entity and partnership, getting really deep into the weeds on that, that could, we could spend a whole hour talking about that. But then you've also got the real advantage, right? Of long-term capital gains. That is a reduced rate, historically speaking, as compared to ordinary income. And that has to do with how long you own the property. That's the biggest factor. Uh, When you sell a property, if you've owned it for or most of the time, longer than a year, you get a reduced tax rate on the the gains that you got by selling that asset. But again, hard and fast rule, you're going to want to talk to an accountant because everyone's independent financial situation really controls what that uh, the amount of taxes you will pay. But great question. Love the thought. You're on the right track there. That one coming from Instagram, which is also another uh, favorite there in the social sphere. Uh, when do I need to be, what, oh, excuse me, uh, chicken scratch hand right here. What do I need to be financially prepared to buy a home? What do I need to be financially prepared to buy a home? There's a couple of schools of thought on this. And my Dave Ramsey folks are probably not going to like this one a lot. You do not have to have 20% down on a property. You don't have to. Should you is a different conversation. That's a personal one that that you are going to have to explore on your own um, to determine whether or not it's right. Some of the most conservative uh, people in the financial space will say 20% should be a minimum when you're buying a property, a minimum. Um, and that having to do with loan to value ratio, right? You get a better interest rate, you get uh, better terms on the loan, you've got a lot more financial freedom in a worst case scenario, you're not over leveraged, right? So there's a lot of thought and schools of process that go into how much should you have cash invested into a property whenever you purchase. There are 100% financing products out there. Uh, there's a first-time home buyers with the credit union, uh, 100% financing. It is an adjustable rate. Uh, last time I saw, I think it's a seven-year arm, so the first seven years being at a fixed rate, and then after that it becomes adjustable. 
there are also five-year adjustable rate mortgages. There's 10-year adjustable rate mortgages. So there's multiple products out there. So for the adjustable rate or 100% financing side, uh, check with your local credit union would be my recommendation starting there. FHA, right, a government-backed loan, right, which allows a little bit more risk for the lender because the government is insuring the loan in a way. So uh, there are multiple products out there and then everything in between from 100% to straight cash, right? So uh, really up to you personally where you got to be at. Now, one thing I would focus on that does matter, and it's a big indicator of what type of loan product and where you're going to land with your interest rate, your credit score. It's very important. It's something that we can disagree till the cows come home on the metric and the formula used for a credit score. But at the end of the day, it is what every lender is going to use is your credit score when determining whether or not they are going to lend money to you. The second being your debt to income ratio. So even if you've made all your payments on time, right? Let's say you make $1,000 a month and you've got $700 a month in credit listed or current debts that you report on your um, mortgage application, right? That is a high debt to income ratio. So you have a lot of debts as compared to what you're making. Um, So what you make, right? Versus the amount of money you have in debts, car payments, student loans, credit card bills, other types of personal loans, maybe anything else, medical bills that are reported at this point, right? So there's a lot of factors when we talk about your debt to income ratio, uh, but credit score and debt to income ratio and cash on hand. If I'm thinking of the top three things, debt to income ratio, credit score and cash on hand, those will be the three things that really determine whether or not you're financially sound to purchase a property in your marketplace. Get with a local mortgage broker, right? Mortgage lender, mortgage officer, loan officer. There's a lot of different names for them and they have different things that they can and can't do and what they can and can't offer you. But find one in your marketplace that really knows the market and ask questions. The best ones out there will take the time, even if you can't buy today, they'll help you on your financial journey to help you buy a house. They don't get paid until the the house closes, right? So there is an incentive for them to help you buy a house. So keep that in mind whenever you're considering purchasing. Again, those three factors that I would say are at the top of the list for being financially sound to purchase cash on hand, credit score, and your debt to income ratio. Hard and fast rule on that. But, uh, Thanks for all the questions today. I really love enjoying the uh, asking, um, answering your questions. 844-STUDIO-4, that's the phone number. Today's Real Talk, todaysrealtalk.com, Justin Kazepis. Want to subscribe to the content? 844-STUDIO-4, just text get real. 844-STUDIO-4, text get real. We'll get the content as it comes out directly to your mobile device that you text from. Really enjoyed the conversation today. Thanks again to Yona Weiss, the Cossack King himself, host of Weiss Advice. Vice, the podcast, uh, cost segregation, a wonderful resource and tool to keep in our belt. Looking forward to the next conversation we're going to have. We'll see you next week.